Yale Podcast Network. We forget that the creatures, the squirrels and the possums and the raccoons and the bumblebees and the songbirds are are just as much nature as wilderness is. But that, those creatures that have learned to live in the margins that we leave them, the little scraps of the natural world that we have allowed them, they do require some participation on our part. Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast about the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Jennifer Skeen. And I'm Viveka Morris. In the long months we've all been confined to our homes, many people have become reacquainted with the vibrant life just outside their doors. Through the exploding interest in bird watching, gardening, and other backyard adventures, Even in the face of this year's grief and pain, many people have found unexpected joy, companionship, and hope through partaking in the cycles of love and loss that happen in the skies and yards around us. The author E.B. White wrote, Always be on the lookout for the presence of wonder. It is this wonder, from the nesting chipmunk family under her house to watching a monarch butterfly emerge from a chrysalis in her yard that our guest today captures so evocatively. Through her writing, Margaret Rankle offers a vast window to that wonder, conveying the profundity to be found in the wild and not-so-wild world and how we live in concert with other beings. But these days, loving nature and mourning it often go hand in hand. At the foundation of our environmental crises lies humanity's extreme disconnect from nature, from disappearing forests and rising seas to shorter winters and toxin-laced waters. Humans have tried to dominate the natural world, attempting to see ourselves as distinct and untethered from other living things around us. Margaret Renkel is a voice for celebrating our communion with nature once again and changing how we live. As she wrote in one of her recent New York Times columns on the mass killing of millions of minks in Denmark that contracted coronavirus, our mistake was only partly in believing that the natural world was ours for the taking. Our mistake was also in failing to understand that we ourselves are part of the natural world. If this pandemic has taught us anything, it's that we cannot escape the world we have shaped. We must begin right now to make preserving biodiversity a priority, to make protecting wildlife habitats a priority, to make living in closer harmony with our wild neighbors a priority. It's this connection to nature and the grief and hope that go with it that Rankle explores with vividness and haunting beauty in her masterful, genre-transcending book, Late Migrations, A Natural History of Love and Loss. Through vignettes, she creates a tapestry of her childhood in Alabama, her experiences of grief and renewal, and the mirrors and lessons she finds in the trees, bird feeders, and rosemary bushes of suburban Tennessee. In stories about the heartbreak of losing her parents, finding the perfect squirrel-proof finch feeder, and seeing the chattering of birds in her yard as they warn of a lurking snake. She grounds the extraordinary and uplifts the everyday, finding reflections and teachings on life's greatest joys and sorrows in the world around her. Margaret Renkel is a New York Times opinion columnist based in Nashville, whose incisive commentary and breathtaking portraits of our relationship with the natural world have awakened people to the preciousness of what we have, how profoundly we will feel its loss if we do not become better cohabitants of this planet, and how, even in the darkest times, there is much to celebrate. Margaret Renkel, welcome to When We Talk About Animals. Thank you so much for having me. You've written that you knew you wanted to be a nature writer since you were eight, but like so many people, your path uh, took a winding road. Um, And then you've published your first book, which is just absolutely so magnificent, um, when you were in your 50s and became a New York Times columnist around that same time as well. What catalyzed you to start writing again? Will you tell us that story? It's a little hard to explain. I think people think because my first book came out, And I started writing regularly for the Times around the same time that I must have been doing entirely something different all all the years leading up to being in my mid-50s. And the truth is that I 
I really had only stopped writing for the the five years or so before I began the essays that are in late migration, some of which began at the Times. It was, it, but I was writing different things. I was in school and in my twenties and early thirties. I was focusing exclusively on poetry. My master's degree is in poetry, and and then I needed to make some money, <laughs> and poetry is not the way to do that. When I couldn't teach, when I was put on bed rest before my second child was born, and so I began writing essays about the same kinds of things that I had been writing poems about. And in the early years, they were almost all about nature. But as my children were born and became, you know, small children are very absorbing. And they're also sort of wild. It's a little bit like um, observing nature to watch a human animal come into the world and, and, begin to navigate it. It's absolutely fascinating. So more of what I was writing about were were my kids, really. But about 12 years into being a full-time freelance writer, I took a job as an editor. That was the same year that my husband had back surgery and my mother had to move to Tennessee to be to live in the house directly across the street from us so that I could help take care of her. And uh, being a full-time editor and having sandwich generation duties um, made it pretty much impossible to write. I just, I, I didn't think I was feeling the absence of it. I think I just thought I was trying to survive. And, and then when my mom died suddenly, and very shortly after that, my mother-in-law, whom I absolutely loved with all my heart, um, entered the final stages of Parkinson's disease. And I was really just, uh, I felt that I was just completely subsumed by death. And so I, I as a kind of a, a, a source of solace, I started just standing at the window a little bit more and looking out. And then that fall, I ran into an old friend who's a, a writer. He was at the Southern Festival of Books here in Nashville with one of his books. His day job uh, at the time was being the deputy editor of the Abed section at the New York Times, and he was asking about the family, and I was sort of explaining how, how things were bad and getting worse, and he said, would you ever want to write about that? And I didn't realize it. What he meant was, that the Times was about to start a series on end-of-life issues, and he would be glad to pass something along if I did write about what we were going through to the appropriate editor. I thought he meant that it was a psychic thing, that if I wrote about what I was going through, I would feel a little bit more in control of it and a little bit less gobsmacked. And it turns out he was right even though that's not what he meant. I just started uh, using the time in the middle of the night when I couldn't sleep or when I woke so early, everybody else was sleeping. And I just started writing a little bit at a time. Some of what I was writing was about my mom. Um, some of what I was writing was about the squirrels and the birds and the possums in my yard. They just were very short essays. They, the kind of thing I might've written a poem about earlier in my writing life. And um, about a year and a half in, some writer friends said, you know, this could be a book. You know, you're writing a book. And I hadn't really thought of it in those terms until somebody else pointed it out to me that there was a lot of similarity between the experience of grieving a loss and watching the cycles of life and death in the natural world outside my window. And of course, now you're writing in a time of national and global grieving as people are losing loved ones to the pandemic. And throughout this turbulent time, your pieces have offered solace and wisdom, really cutting through the chaos and offering both hope, but also somber warnings. You've written on the environmental toll the pandemic reflects, like with the recent piece you wrote on the mass killing of minks that had contracted the coronavirus the pandemic's impacts on families and businesses, devastating environmental rollbacks. 
but also finding joy in your son's wedding and in the changing seasons and the animals in your backyard. What's been your experience writing during the pandemic, during this time of shared grief? And where have you been finding hope? I get a lot of um, emails from readers who tell me that I'm giving them hope or solace or encouragement that they feel better. And I'm always kind of happily surprised because I feel a little bit like I'm writing those things to convince myself not to descend into despair. And if it's making other people feel that same way, that's very gratifying. For me, the the secret to almost everything is to to zoom in or zoom out, depending on what is happening. So there are times when the the macrocosm, the the great world at large is devastating. And that's that's certainly been true in 2020. It's been true on a planetary level. It's been true on a health level. It's been true on, I have to tell you, the the weeks leading up to my son's wedding were uh, probably the most stressful of my life. And I've buried you know, two parents and an in-law now, it was just really hard to know what was the right thing to do. And, and really for my husband and me to know what to say and how to trust our son and daughter-in-law to do the right thing when we were so much more tuned in than people their age tend to be and a little bit more conscious of the risk. And um, it, as it turns out, it was all beautiful. It was an immediate family-only wedding, and everybody else zoomed in, and it worked out great. But it was, it was overwhelming. So when that happens, when things get overwhelming in the large, larger world, what I tend to do is look at smaller things, and and watch as, as much as I can. Pay attention to what's living in my pollinator garden. This year we had a bird grasshopper. I've never seen one in this yard in 25 years in this house. One of those really large finger long grasshoppers. And and it was hilarious because it just set up camp there and would watch me when I was doing what I needed to do. And that was just very encouraging to see life going on. I love your pieces about your yard that every single one of them I read in the New York Times and, and the ones in, in Late Migrations as well are absolutely wonderful. And you have a, a wonderful approach to gardening, which as soon as I have a garden, I intend to copy immediately, um, <laughs> which I'm hoping that you'll tell us about, which is very different than most people. Like most people approach it with the goal of making it pretty to human eyes. And your approach to your garden, as you explain it, is to make it you and your husband have spent 25 years building this wildlife haven. And all of the decisions made are, are whether or not a bush is trimmed or what you plant is made with wild animals in mind. And, and, and then, then in the garden, you describe all these different ways in which your family is interwoven, too. You mentioned in the pieces growing the flowers for your son's wedding and the rose bushes that you had inherited from previous generations. And I'm curious, will you tell us, tell us about what your approach is to your yard? I don't, you know, I think that we have somehow in suburban America decided that the outdoors needs to be an extension of our living rooms, that it needs to be entirely comfortable for us. There shouldn't be any bugs. There shouldn't be any, not a blade of grass out of order. I mean, people are putting televisions on their screen porches. It's it's as though uh, we don't want the natural world to be natural. We want it to be as orderly as we want our living spaces to be. And that to me is both wrongheaded and tragic because the great thing about living in a place that has a little bit of land around it is that you then do get to participate in wildness. I mean, I think we think we we often make the mistake of thinking of nature as the Appalachian Trail or some kind of wild river or shore. And we forget that the creatures, the squirrels and the possums and the raccoons and the bumblebees and the songbirds are are just as much nature as wilderness is. But that those creatures that have learned to live in the margins that we leave them, the little scraps of the natural world that we have allowed them, 
they do require some participation on our part. Um, they, they need us to plant shrubs and trees that produce flowers that native bees can feed on when they emerge from the soil in this early springtime where the honeybees can feed on when they wake in the spring. We need insects to emerge from the leaf mold that we let develop uh, by not raking or blowing leaves so that when the songbirds have their nests in the spring, they have insects to feed their young. Almost all songbirds, even the ones that exist exclusively as vegetarians, as adults, feed their young insects because growing bodies need protein. And if you've poisoned your yard or you've raked your yard into pure submission, then there isn't anything to feed them. So our yard is a mess. It, it isn't charming at all. Every time I, I try to plant something, it's with migratory songbirds in mind. What will they need when they're flying north to their um, nesting grounds? What will they need to eat when they're flying south to their wintering grounds? What will our native songbirds and our native bees and our native uh, mammals, what will they need to eat? And where will they get something to drink when we have the inevitable droughts that we now have every year? That's not hard to do. It's not challenging really in any way. If you don't have a, a native plant nursery nearby, most of those plants can be had by mail order. And the great thing about planting native plants, plants that are native to your region, as opposed to down here, everybody loves Japanese plants. And so there's all kinds of exotic, I mean, the, in the, the American South must mimic the ecosystem of, of Asia because so many of the plants that landscapers want to plant aren't native. And if they aren't native to the region, then the creatures that are native to the region can't eat them or nest in them, or use them for their own purposes. So part of gardening for nature means doing no harm. That means letting the leaves lie. Um, that means not, you know, putting bug spray on yourself and not on your bushes, stuff like that. And it also means if you want to take it one step further, putting up nesting boxes for the cavity nesters like bluebirds and purple martins and tufted titmice and chickadees. Uh, those kinds of little hollows and dead trees that they don't have anymore in suburbia. You can put up a nest box, you can plant annuals and perennials that are native to your region so that butterflies and other insects have pollen. It's it's not hard. It, it's certainly no harder than making a manicured yard. It's just reframing what it is you're trying to accomplish. One thing I really love about your work is the way you can make nature intensely personal, but also convey the insignificance of human observation and the human experience to the natural world. For example, you wrote an op-ed about walking in the woods in November and the cushioning of the leaves, but how the leaves were obviously not there for the purpose of cushioning your feet, but for the forest ecosystem as a whole. And in your book, Late Migrations, imagining humans seeing a river near your house for the very first time and thinking about the river persisting long after we're gone. So nature can mean so much to us, but we're really just a blip when viewed in geological or environmental time. But instead of finding despair in that, you write about how you take comfort in that insignificance. Can you talk about that? I don't think that we are more insignificant. I, would, I wouldn't want to be misunderstood as saying that in some way I think other people aren't as important as, as the creatures that we see in the woods or in our own yards. But it, I take comfort from the fact that we, in terms of mortality, we are all on equal standing. So every living thing is going to die and every dead thing is going to decay or is going to be eaten by something else. That doesn't, I guess, sound very reassuring, but to me it's, it's calming to see all those things 
as part of a natural process, as something that isn't a kind of judgment or a kind of, I don't know, it's not a punishment. It's just the way things are. And even though it doesn't make losing someone you love any less tragic, it does make you or it makes me feel less singled out for suffering, if that makes any sense. It does. It, it reminds me of one of my uh, favorite columns that you've written in New York Times is, is entitled The Spider in My Life. And I'll never forget the end of that column where you describe in it both what sounds like an amazing hummingbird feeder consisting of fruit flies rather than the typical juice, which I had never heard of before, but you describe in it both this cloud of fruit flies outside the window that you've installed for the for the hummingbirds and also a small spider that you're watching among all this silk and how the fruit flies will be caught and will go on to become baby hummingbird wings and the spider's silk will go on to be part of the nest and and it was just such a such a beautiful image to to imagine that so thank you for that <laughs> among others yeah i think that one thing that is helpful to me and and it could be helpful to the world is if people slowed down and and looked at how these things work instead of just sweeping the spider web away. What is what is the spider web providing? It's a home, it's a source of food for the spider. It's also what the hummingbird needs to build a nest. It's when you see how it all works together, surely people who see how it all works together will be more inclined to want to preserve it. And that's one thing that I have found, I don't want to say it's a, it's a compensation because that sounds like I would gladly give up 250,000 American lives for this and I would not. But I, I, the one compensation I can see from this pandemic, and, or at least from the quarantines that go, have gone along with the pandemic, is so many more people seem, seem to be noticing this stuff more. Mm. And if you don't notice it, you won't see when it's gone. And I don't know if anybody ever pointed this out to me directly as a child, but it became clear to me at some point that it's very, very, very rare to see a dead songbird or or really anything much that's dead that hasn't been hit by a car. Things crawl away um, into seclusion to die, and then they get cleaned up pretty quickly by the scavengers and so we might not notice that there are fewer songbirds in our yard if we didn't notice the songbirds in the first place. And we wouldn't notice that animals get really thirsty during droughts if we didn't have a bowl of water out for them. And you've, you've written a lot about, you know, your, your own process of, of aging, including in the beautiful essay, The Gift of Menopause, that you wrote um, a couple of years ago. And, and toward the end of that essay, you talk about finding more time to simply go out and experience the world and, and the solace you found there. Has your own relationship to the natural world evolved throughout your adult life, or is this sort of a, a perspective and, and you know, ethos you've, you've always embodied around it? I think it's kind of both. I think in my childhood, we moved into um, a house in the suburbs when I was 14. So, but in the years before that, I did spend almost my entire childhood outside, I think. And I mean, that was partly my generation. My, my, in my generation, parents, uh, there was no competition to be the ideal parent. They were just like, if you were still alive at the end of the day, they'd done their job. So, <laughs> you know, they just sent you away in the morning, go play. That was the, you know, universal instruction in my, in my world, go play and, you know, come home when you're hungry. And so I did spend so much time outside, but of course, you know, in adolescence, you get interested in love and I don't know, books and, and then when I was in college and graduate school, I I went to college in um, at Auburn University, which is an, in a rural area, and I started spending a lot more time outside again, and I, then back inside again when my kids were little, and you know I we we would go outside, I would take them out to the creek or the woods or whatever, but I couldn't pay attention to anything but them. I had to make sure they weren't going to drown or 
run into the road. And so I really think that this stage that I'm in now, and I guess because that, I guess because I didn't have my children until I was in my thirties, that empty nest and menopause kind of coincided. So I, I got this chance to kind of return to myself in a way was no longer focused on them. I was getting a chance to go back to the interests and that I'd had earlier and, and, and spend my time in ways that I had earlier. And that was really unexpected for me. I didn't, I I thought I was going to experience my children's growing up and leaving the nest as a, as a kind of grief, as a loss. And it was that, but it was not only that. And it was also a way to sort of go back to being Margaret and not mom. You've written many very fascinating essays on predators and on both on humans as predators in nature, but also on uh, the rattlesnake that you and your husband discovered in your yard and a tomcat that appeared in the neighborhood and started murdering the local birds and the conflicts of seeing these conflicts play out in nature. I think your your perspective on this is fascinating because it's both very empathetic to all of the animals, particularly I'm thinking of the case of the of the feral cat, but also also thoughtful about the role that humans play in creating these problems in some cases in the first place. And and I'm just curious if you could speak about that and how you think about the conflicts that arise with native versus non-native creatures in an area and which ones deserve to belong there and how we treat them and so forth. I think we're probably going to have to have a reconnoitering about what we consider natural as climate change proceeds. I mean, we know now that the climate will continue to warm, even if we manage to cut off the the rate at which carbon enters the atmosphere right this minute, which we are nowhere even close to being able to do. So the temperatures are going to continue to rise. And as that happens, the environment itself is going to change. And so um, um, this is something I'm really interested in right now is like, I've sort of made peace with starlings. I a star, a European starlings were brought to this country at the end of the 19th century, uh, a foolish whim to populate in the new world, every songbird mentioned in Shakespeare. And they were released in Central Park, I believe. It could have been Long Island, but I think Central Park. And they have just spread across the country ever since. And they take the nesting holes used by native cavity dwellers for their nests. And they're very bossy and and loud birds. And so the other birds are easily intimidated by them. And of course, they're eating the same foods that native birds um, would normally be eating. And they flock together in the fall and the winter in these huge flocks. And that's a very intimidating thing to the remaining songbirds that we, we have who overwinter here. But it turns out in um, studies, they really have not affected the populations. I think there's really only one songbird population, one form of one little woodpecker, maybe, whose numbers are down since starlings have moved into their ecosystem. And we may see that more and more. We may see that the invasive species aren't quite as invasive as we had assumed. And I'll be curious to see how that works. We have a little house wren in our yard who has been nesting here every year for the last five years. Mm. And this is not nesting territory for house wrens. House wrens are native to North America, but they do not traditionally nest anywhere in Middle Tennessee. And yet here is this house wren and it's terrible. He he the he arrives late because he is coming from South America. And so the chickadees already taken this little box that I put out for the chickadees, this little nesting box, and built a, an elaborate nest and has laid I don't know, three or four usually, sometimes eight or 10 speckled eggs. And the house wren arrives every spring now and pulls all of it out and drops it on the ground and takes the nest box for itself. 
every year. And that shouldn't be happening, but it is happening. And so we may find ourselves, I think, reconfiguring our understanding of what is natural. But what is not natural at all is for domesticated animals to live in the wild. And so the feral cat that showed up in our neighborhood, uh, and this is an incredibly um, controversial subject in some quarters, but studies have shown that uh, American house cats just wreak absolute havoc on the natural world. When That's in part, I think, because animals that are not domesticated they predators that would prey on songbirds or on small mammals, they kill what they are hungry to eat. And American house cats kill for fun. I mean that sounds judgmental and I don't mean it, but that's that they, they have an imperative to chase and to catch. Um, and it doesn't matter whether they're hungry or not. That's what they do and they continue to do it. Whereas a natural predator like a bobcat, it's going to move from my yard to my neighbor's yard to the next neighbor's yard, across the street, into the next neighborhood, down that street, across a dry creek bed, all the way down. It's constantly moving. It's not clearing every single songbird or chipmunk or squirrel or rabbit from the premises the way a house cat does. And that's true whether the house cat is a pampered pet who's allowed to go outside, or it's true whether it's a feral cat that has no comfort or it takes no comfort from human companionship and is not cared for at all. That's a different scenario to me. And that's one that we don't watch and wait and see how that's going. That's one where we have an absolute imperative to get those animals out of the world. Yeah, you, you just mentioned, you know, having to come to terms with reevaluating what is and is not natural. And of course, grief plays such a big role in your writing, whether it's reckoning with the loss of, of your parents or, or grief over uh, environmental changes. And, and over the last few years, we have developed a much more sophisticated vocabulary around grief related to the natural world that we're losing. Uh, we have new words like talvisuru, which is Finnish for, for winter grief, which is something I'm experiencing right now as I'm seeing rain in central New York at the end of November, or, or solastalgia uh, around the emotional distress caused by environmental change. And these words are, are trying to capture this new kind of grief we're experiencing um, over over changes that should not be happening or you know would not be happening without human influence. So much of the grief you write about is in many ways timeless and, and intergenerational, but something about this environmental grief seems new, at least new enough to warrant new words. Do you think about and write about this grief differently? You know, I probably should, but I don't think I do. And in fact, I think that that's maybe one thing that I have taken the most comfort from, and that's that this feeling does feel personal. Grief is the word and not sorrow because it's personal. It's a loss that I feel not to the same degree that I grieve the loss of my mother, but in the same family as that grief. And I almost wonder if everybody felt that way, if there would be a stronger push to do something about it. It's always a mistake to believe that it's that we have to do it, that it has to be done by ordinary American households. We have to stop using plastic. We have to keep the waste stream small. We have to compost. We have to plant natives. And I think those things are powerful and important things to do, but they alone will not solve our problems. But, but grief and fury can be transformed into political action as well. I mean, our politicians are only going to do what we demand that they do. And we aren't going to demand it if we don't feel it acutely, I think. I agree. It reminds me of an interview I read uh, in some article a few weeks ago about bird seed being bought up during the pandemic. And it was an interview with a owner of a local Wild Birds Unlimited shop. And he was said to the reporter that 
they were seeing booming business and that when people put up bird feeders then and would come back to the store to get a second or third load of bird seed, they would have switched from calling them the birds to calling them our birds, um, which I thought was, was very oh. interesting. And that you can see that in the yard, like even in your descriptions of the animals in your yard, which are animals, be it a spider or a grasshopper or birds that... You know, these aren't exotic animals like octopuses or lions or something that are amazing in their own way, but distant, but things that almost everybody in America has, you know, in close proximity to them. I wonder how you think about, per your point, about stirring political action and getting people to feel and to seize this ownership of these creatures and and the planet, how you think about approaching your column. And it strikes me as a very different and very effective, but very different style than many op-eds. Often in op-eds, you'll see a very straightforward policy argument or clear political action versus like really trying to move hearts, hearts and minds, I suppose. And I'm just curious as to, as to what you see, see as sort of the goals of it and how you think about that. Well, I guess it would, first of all, I'm not a political writer. I do sometimes write about politics, but in general, I don't very much. I don't consider most of the things I write about in the sense that politics would presume that there's a point and a counterpoint, one view and an opposing view, a right and a left. And I don't think of writing about the natural world as political in the sense that increasing, we're seeing in polls that this dichotomy about the environment that, you know, people on the right don't care about it. People on the left are apoplectic about it. And we're seeing that that's a little bit of a political construct. We're finally seeing that rank and file Republicans, even if you aren't seeing Republicans in Congress being concerned or expressing concern about climate change or the state of the natural world, you're seeing regular people expressing concern. Regular people do not want to drink polluted water. They do not want to breathe polluted air. Mm -hmm. They don't want the birds to disappear. And I don't think of writing about the environment as political. I don't think about writing, I don't think writing about LGBTQ issues is political. I don't think about writing about the death penalty is political. Those are all things that I think we can agree on if they are approached in the right way. The line got drawn for political purposes, but it isn't useful um, to regular people. So we can talk about political polarity forever and what to do about that. And the fact that people aren't agreeing on basic facts is definitely a problem. But uh, there's nobody that you ask who says they would like to drink water that has carcinogens released into it by a corporation that is insufficiently monitored. Nobody wants that. It doesn't matter what, how they how they vote. So I think, you know, one thing that I try to do is write about these things in a way that is as apolitical as possible. And, and I guess I tend to do that by making them personal trying to make somebody who reads about the killing of 17 million minks in Euro, European mink farms, trying to let them see those little pink fingers mm -hmm. and those pricked ears and those curious eyes as they try to understand what we're doing to them. If it's personal like that, it's so much harder to ignore. And I also think just as a general rule, as a general rule of human communication, when you say, I feel, you get farther than when you say, you did. <laughs> I mean, I think that people get naturally defensive when they think somebody is saying that they are stupid or careless or mean. And if you can change the conversation a little bit so that is, it's I feel grief instead of I'm angry. Usually it opens the conversation a tiny bit more. Not always. This depoliticizing of the writing also, you know, prompts a question about your writing style, because part of what makes your writing so captivating, I think, is that you're not looking at the natural world strictly through a scientific lens, but through a deeply personal one. Um, I love your quote about how the flip side of ignorance is astonishment, and I am good at astonishment. And, and it's an it's emotion and, and reaction to nature that is so relatable in your writing. 
and unfortunately, we're we're living in a time where science has become politicized in many ways, and essential truths about our world are being questioned. What role do you see this personalization of of your writing, especially as a New York Times columnist, playing in making the objective subjective and making nature relatable and personal? Well, I can't write as a scientist because I'm not a scientist. So that's, um, and I think it would be probably uh, unfair to scientists to suggest that, you know, they write in, in, in a scientific way and I write in a personal way because there are many trained scientists who are just absolutely brilliant writers. And I think about David George Haskell, who's who's a biologist who was whose first book was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. And I think we're seeing more of that kind of writing from people who are trained in science, but I'm not. And so I don't have that knowledge. I'm My youngest child is a, a senior in college studying environmental science, and he knows so much more than I know. And it's I steal his textbooks sometimes and look at them and and just see how much I don't know. But one of the few great things about the Internet at this point, I'm pretty down on the Internet, but (laughs) it is that you can find out almost anything you need to know. So I have a bunch of apps on my phone that are that help me with ID. They're not very reliable, but they can get me into the right category. Um, so that when I get home, I can look it up in one of my field guides. So it is possible for somebody who isn't scientifically trained to learn some really interesting and crucial stuff without needing a degree. I'm not saying, and I don't want in any way to suggest that degrees in science are unnecessary in the age of the internet, because that is absolutely not true. But for regular people who don't have that, I was an English major in school, then then it, it's a way of opening up knowledge that we didn't have before. Absolutely. Especially with, even with apps like iNaturalist and so forth, I've been absolutely amazed by how incredibly accurate, even with the machine learning on there, there's sort of one, one hidden benefit of, of AI is being able to identify a warbler correctly, thanks to those algorithms. Right. Uh, we're hoping, um, Margaret, that you'll do us the honor of reading a few pieces from Late Migration so listeners can hear your words uh, from you directly. Jen and I had a terrible time going through trying to narrow this down to just, just two, um, since we liked all of them and had so many bookmarks. But two, two of them that we both absolutely loved uh, that we're hoping you'll read our squirrel proof finch feeder lifetime warranty and the final essay in the book which is entitled holy 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 sure this one's called squirrel proof finch feeder lifetime warranty the steel grommets around the miniature openings fit only for conical beaks cannot be chewed open by even the most persistent rodent Both the top and the bottom of the feeder detach for ease in filling and cleaning, but the pegged fittings can't be managed by thumbless hands. The seed is black niger, a feast for goldfinches, distasteful to squirrels. So say the experts at the bird supply store. The experts have not met this squirrel. He takes the feeder by the perches, one in each hand, pulling it to his mouth like an ear of sweet corn at a 4th of July potluck. He makes his own mouth small to match the cleft mouth of the feeder, and he licks the seeds out one by one. This is an embrace, a kiss that goes on for hours. Seed by seed, he fills his belly. He has nothing but time, and the squirrel-proof finch feeder, impervious to fury and force, is undone by patience and time. He knows I am at my desk barely more than an arm's reach from the window, but I do not concern him. I am only watching through the window, and I I do not in any way concern him. That's one of many pieces I just absolutely love in this book. That's one of my favorite things about squirrels is that they just know you're sitting there looking at them. 
I was just about to say that's so relatable to anybody who knows sort of the audacity of squirrels. <laughs> do whatever they want to do when you're standing right there. They'll come right down to your dog's nose level and kind of taunt them and then run up the tree again when right when the dog gets there. It's just amazing to watch them. They're so funny. And the funny thing, you know, the thing that I think is so wonderful about paying attention to, to these creatures outside the window is that you realize that not every squirrel is the same. They look the same. But they are as individual as we are. <laughs> mm-hmm. That one squirrel, none of the other squirrels were doing this. It was just that one squirrel. And day after day, there he was just looking at me. <laughs> and there's a lot of regional variability in their behavior as well. I remember when I was living in Los Angeles, like they were very aggressive and very outgoing. Like they just reveled in taunting the dogs and the people. Uh, and But then back in Florida, uh, North Florida, where I'm from, you know, there are a lot meeker and sort of live their own independent lives, uh, more divorced from humans. So it was very interesting to see sort of the different social networks and and personalities of the different squirrel regions. It's probably also, I mean, like every college campus I've ever been on, the squirrels were just absolutely in charge. You know, it's the immediate environment can tell them whether or not they're, how, how much risk they really are are undertaking and on college campuses, it's not very much. Right, right. <laughs> I once saw a squirrel on Yale's campus here take an entire piece of pizza up a tree. <laughs> um, so I think you're absolutely right about that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the other one you asked was the very last one. It's called Holy, Holy, Holy. On the morning after my mother's sudden death, before I was up, someone brought a basket of muffins good coffee beans, and a bottle of cream, real cream, unwhipped, left them at the back door and tiptoed away. I couldn't eat. The smell of coffee turned my stomach, but my head was pounding from all the tears and all the what-ifs playing across my mind all night long, and I thought perhaps the cream would make a cup of coffee count as breakfast if I could keep it down. When I poured just a drip of cream into my cup, it erupted into volcanic bubbles in a hot spring, unspooling skeins of bridal lace, fireworks over a dark ocean, stars streaking across the night sky above a silent prairie. And that's how I learned the world would go on. An irreplaceable life had winked out in an instant. But outside my window, the world was flaring up in celebration. Someone was hearing, it's benign. Someone was saying, it's a boy. Someone was throwing out her arms and crying, thank you, thank you, oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Margaret, for reading those. That last essay is just so moving. And, uh, you know, I, I read the book this summer in the depths of the pandemic, and it was just, it meant, it meant so much to me. And I know it meant so much to readers all around the world. So thank you so much for sharing that on this podcast and for sharing your, your writing and your experiences with, with the world. It's more timely now than ever. So really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for reading and thank you for inviting me to talk about animals. Yeah, absolutely. No, thank you. And and to close, um, we, we just ask each guest to, to provide any recommendations they have for, for books or, or articles or films, works, anything that's had a significant impact on, on you or, or your work. Would you please share a, a few recommendations with us? I, I hesitate to call these writers influences because I, I would not want to be Compared to them, I think I would suffer by the comparison. But I, I really, um, there's so many writers whose work has been inspiring to me. I think, I think first of all, Annie Dillard. I think right side by side with Annie Dillard is Evie White. Mm-hmm. The book I first read of Annie Dillard's was, of course, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, mm-hmm. which is a book about a writer who just has a little neighborhood creek. It, it doesn't even look like a creek when you drive and look at it because I've been there. It, it, it's got a road over it, but she just studied all the little creatures around that creek. And, and it was, I am so indebted to that book and also to E.B. White's book, One Man's Meat. I mean, there's nothing that E.B. White has written that isn't 
just completely brilliant. He's probably my favorite writer of all time. But One Man's Meat is a collection of essays he wrote um, about living on his saltwater farm in Maine after he had pretty much left The New Yorker. And these essays were monthly installments in Harper's Magazine. Uh, more recently, I really loved Helen McDonald's H's for Hawk, um, which is um, the first time I ever really thought about how you could combine a personal narrative with writing about the natural world. And, and Helen has a new book out, just came out this fall, called Vesper Flights, and it's a collection of essays about the natural world, very largely about the effect of climate change on the natural world, but not exclusively so. She's also a, a writer who, is, who has graduate degrees in science, but she is um, just a really wonderfully warm and personal writing uh, writer. And I, I could probably keep going, but I'm going to stop with those three because those are all of those books are easy to find. Thank you for those. Yeah, we're we're big fans of of all of those. I love Helen McDonald's book. Her uh, I saw her in conversation uh, over Zoom, of course, with Drew Lanham a few weeks ago, and it was just an incredible conversation of two amazing naturalists and and poets. And uh, I'm a big admirer of their work. Oh, I should mention Drew's book because um, Drew Lanham is uh, is also a milkweed author, and he's also a, a trained scientist and and a beautiful poetic writer. And and there's another new book from Milkweed this fall that maybe readers would especially like. It's called World of Wonders. It's by a poet named Amy Nezakumatatil, and they're short essays. And she too kind of weaves in her her story as the daughter of immigrants with the uh, animals and the plants that have delighted her throughout her life. And so each essay is a different animal or a different plant. It's a wonderful book and it's very short and it has illustrations. World of Wonders. Oh, great. We'll have to check that one out. In the meantime, we'll be, we'll be following your columns closely. And Margaret Rankle, thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you, Vivica. Thank you, Jennifer. appreciate it. Thank you, too, to Ryan McAvoy, the Yale Broadcast Studio, and Daniel Block for their work on this episode. When We Talk About Animals is supported by the Law, Ethics, and Animals program at Yale Law School. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about Margaret Rankle and her work. Thanks for listening.